Welcome to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. I'm Meredith Curtis. Welcome to Finish Well Podcast. We are so excited to have you join us on our ultimate extravagant USA road trip. This is our fourth trip and we're going to the Southwest and the West. This is episode 165. So if you're looking for the show notes, you can find them on our Finish Well Podcast page. So I believe that learning geography by traveling on a road trip is one of the best things you can do to discover places and to learn to map them and to learn about the people and the culture and the things that are there. And so we're going to learn U.S. geography the fun way on a road trip. Pack your suitcase, grab your gear, and let's go. On our whirlwind tour of the southwest and western states, we will get to see deserts, cattle ranches, rock formations, mountains, Native Americans, and cowboys. We'll need to stay hydrated out here. There's a lot of desert out here. And even though it can get warm in the mountains, it can also get really, really cold at night. This is a land of rugged beauty and wide open spaces. And one thing that you're really going to notice while we're out here is there's such a Spanish influence here, such a Mexican influence here, because a lot of this area was once part of Mexico. Of course, also this area was belonged to the Native Americans and as European Americans kept heading west and heading west, the tribes kept moving westward, moving westward. And so you have um, a lot of Native American influence, a lot of Mexican influence. You can taste it, you can see it in the buildings, and you can see it in the names of towns and street names. And it, it's really interesting. I remember going to La Jala, only it's not La Jala, California, it's La Jolla. Again, there's just so much Spanish influence out here. We're not going to California. That's next week. But California was also part of New Spain before it became a territory of the United States and then a state. So we are going to stop first in some tribal land belonging to the Cherokee nations. Now, the Cherokees lived in the Great Smoky Mountains before European settlers began moving close by. And for a century... The tribe coexisted with the newcomers, but in the 1830s to 1850s, the Cherokees, along with the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Muscogee nations, they had to relocate to what they called Indian Territory. Now, Indian Territory is Oklahoma, so the Cherokee Nation is in present-day Oklahoma, but all of these tribes were forced to move from North Carolina out to Oklahoma. And that was called the Trail of Tears. And I'm sure that you have heard of that westward move called the Trail of Tears in your history class. Well, there's still a settlement of some Cherokees in North Carolina, but the majority 
had to move. They had to take the Trail of Tears. They moved to this area that's now Oklahoma, and they set up their own lands in government. So Tahlequah became the nation's new capital. They developed their own constitution in 1839, and their tribal land covers almost all of northeast Oklahoma. So it's it's a really big, it's a really big settlement. Probably not as big as Four Corners, which is another native land that we're going to visit. You can visit the Cherokee Heritage Center. It's a living museum. It's on their land. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to preserve the history and the culture of the Cherokee Nation. So when we go there, there are displays, people acting things out where we can see what life was like back then. So that's really neat. I love the Cherokee tribe there. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when I was a young woman, before I became a mom, I was a nurse and I actually worked with Native Americans. And so I just love their culture. I love the people. They're all so different. All the tribes are so different with their own unique culture. This is just a, an amazing tribe. It's really exciting to visit this land. More Native Americans live in Oklahoma than any other state except California. Now, keeping in mind that California is huge, it is the number one most populated state. And so, of course, there's going to be more Native Americans there. But Oklahoma isn't very populated, and yet it's the second amount of Native Americans live in Oklahoma. In addition to that, they have the second highest percentage of Native Americans in their population. Alaska has the highest percentage of Native Americans. So that means, in other words, because, and again, Alaska is not heavily populated, but a lot, a high, high percentage of their of the people who live in Alaska are Native Americans. Well, second to that is Oklahoma. So basically, when you're out on the street, when you're in church, when you're at different places, you're going to run into a lot of Native Americans. So that's really exciting. That's one thing I like about Oklahoma. It's um, so diverse. And not just Cherokees or the Chickasaws or the other tribes I talked about, but a lot of different tribes that you'll find living in Oklahoma. Oklahoma's capital is Oklahoma City. It's the largest city in the state, and that is our next stop. And we're kind of moving westward. Oklahoma started as an oil state, oil, a huge, huge part of their economy, as well as cattle ranching. Now, again, Oklahoma doesn't have a huge population. They've got on the northeast where the Cherokees have their land. It's very hilly, very green, very beautiful. As you move further out west, it becomes more deserty, but it's great grazing land for cattle. So what you'll find is you'll find cattle ranchers, you'll find oil men. And what's really cool is Oklahoma has a very strong Christian presence. And there's a lot of Christian universities out there, a lot of churches. A lot of people who are really devoted, they're in church every Sunday, but they're living out their faith. They're very generous people in Oklahoma. It's just a very friendly, nice place to be. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Oklahoma City is that the state capitol building sits right on top of an oil field. 
and there is a working oil well right in front of the Capitol. So that's kind of interesting, right? It's not like you see that every day or in any other state. Something that we can do while we're here is in Oklahoma City is the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. And we can see artwork and artifacts from Cowboys of the Wild West and your children or teens, you can do this too, and your younger brothers and sisters can use their ranch skills in the Children's Cowboy Corral. So, of course, I told you this is cattle ranching country, and so the Oklahoma City stockyards are nearby, and the outdoor pens fill with cattle every Monday and Tuesday. So um, that's very interesting. You know, if you're from the, the, the east, like I am, I'm from Florida, then that is a, wow, stockyard. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen a stockyard. So that's really exciting. Uh, lastly, before we leave Oklahoma City, I want to take you underground because this is so cool. Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, the underground, you can access it from various places throughout the city. And when you go down below to the underground, there are just these long, wide hallways of artwork. So you can go down and see all this beautiful artwork. And I just think that is so cool. I love that. I love that. Well, from Oklahoma City, we are going to go to Texas. You know, you've probably heard that everything is bigger in Texas, and that is true. Texas is number two in area, so it's the second biggest state after Alaska, and it's number two in population. It is the second most populated state after California. I told you California was the most populated state, but in the heart of Texans, Texas is number one. They bleed. <laughs> Someone from Texas once told me, we don't have red blood cells. We have little Texas-shaped map red blood cells or something like they're just Texans love Texas. And so the Lone Star State is famous for barbecue, hot weather, country music, the Alamo, and the Fort Worth Stockyards. There, that's another place where you can go and you see tons of cattle ranches tons of oil wells. Texas and, and Oklahoma are very similar in that. And also you you see the stockyards and stuff, but there's more in Texas. I told you Texas is huge. Texas is bigger than California, bigger than Montana. It is a huge, huge state. When you're in Texas, there's coastline along the Gulf. So you've got beaches and some beach towns there. There is some, some lush green spots too. You've got a lot of farming in Texas. They are just way up there. They're, they're the number one beef producers. They are, they're like number two or three, I think, with cotton. They're just, they produce a lot, a lot of different crops. You would be surprised. So they're a powerhouse, an agricultural powerhouse. They're a ranching powerhouse. They're an oil powerhouse. And they're really friendly and kind. Um, howdy, you know, and they're just very nice. And a lot of them, like, like in Oklahoma, not, maybe not as much as Oklahoma, but a lot of them go to church, a lot of big churches out in Texas. But here's what's unique about Texas from any other, well, no, this isn't from any other, but in the continental United States, 
Hawaii would say the same thing. And that is that Texas was a free country before she joined the union and became a state in the United States of America. So that's, we'll talk about that with Hawaii too. Next time we go on our ultimate extravagant USA road trip. Texas has beaches, deserts, mountains. And what we're going to do is we're going to head down to San Antonio, which is about a 30 minute drive from the Mexican border. So, you know, we, we have an immigration crisis right now here in 2022. If you're listening to this, you know, a couple years later, but right now we have a really big immigration problem. We have a lot of people crossing the border, bringing like sex traffickers and, and, you know, drug cartels, bring drugs in, bringing, um, you know, people who are being sold into sexual slavery. So it's pretty serious. And Texas has a lot of border, just a lot of border. And so the Rio Grande kind of makes a boundary line between Texas and Mexico, but just a lot, a lot of borderland. It's very easy to slip into the country across the border here. But on the other hand, what's really positive is you can go into Mexico, Mexico, the Mexican um, people living on the border cities can come into Texas. And so you really get a lot of that Mexican flavor. So it's very, very, very exciting. Um, but smack dab in the middle of San Antonio, San Antonio is um, I think it's like the sixth largest city. In the United States of America, it's a huge city. And so I was visiting San Antonio with my daughter and I said, oh, my goodness, San Antonio, isn't that where the Alamo is? And so I'm thinking we're going to drive out to the desert to see the Alamo and, you know, it'll be like surrounded by cactuses and um, with some rocky red mountains in the distance. So that was my picture. Well, what's so funny is no. The Alamo's right in the middle of San Antonio. And so it's surrounded by huge buildings. And it's just so bizarre because when you walk into the Alamo behind the, the wall, the walls, you feel like you're back in time. And well, how did that happen? You see, the Spanish missionaries would build these missions and they were like little cities. There would be a church. There would be places for people to live. And there would be buildings to store things and workrooms. And so sometimes a mission might become a fort for a time, which is what happened with the Alamo. But the Alamo wasn't built as a fort. It was a little mission. It was here that the famous standoff between the Mexican army and this small ragtag group of Texans that included David Crockett and James Bowie, Bowie of the Bowie Knife, it took place during the Texas War for Independence. So that, I said, there's this huge Spanish influence throughout the Southwest and the West because this was all part of New Spain. So, you know, the, the, the Spanish missionaries would come in. They wanted to win the Native Americans to Christ, so they'd build these little missions. And the Alamo was a mission. Well, around the Alamo was built the city of San Antonio. So you'll find throughout, throughout the Southwest over to California and through the West, if you find a big city, you'll usually find a Spanish mission at the core of it. And that was the, the beginning. 
of the city. So that's kind of exciting. It's it's so exciting to learn about Texas history. So Texas was part of Mexico. It ended up seceding and becoming its own country. And then to become a state, it gave up a lot of land. So some of that land went to Wyoming, Colorado, um, I I believe New Mexico, but I know for sure Oklahoma and Louisiana. So Texas had to give up a lot of land to become part of the United States. So my question is, if it hadn't given up the land, would it be bigger than Alaska? I doubt it. I doubt it. But it's interesting to think about. Texas was huge. So we're going to leave Texas and we're going to go on to New Mexico. Now, again, New Mexico was once part of New Spain. And then later, when Mexico became independent, it was part of Mexico. New Mexico is covered with cattle ranches. And one thing that's super fun is it's home to the largest balloon festival in the world. The annual festival started in 1972, and it's a spectacular, colorful site. Now, what's interesting, I lived in Arizona for a while, and there were a lot of balloons out there, too, and a lot of vintage cars, because for some reason, the it's, it's, it's ballooning is it's just the Southwest is a great place to balloon. And for another, I don't even know why vintage cars do really, really well. I don't know if it's the dry air. I don't know, but there are tons of vintage cars in Arizona. I'm not, we're, oh, but let me get back to New Mexico. So here we are in New Mexico. Now, another interesting thing about New Mexico, it's got lots of desert. It's kind of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah and Nevada. We're going to visit all those places. They all have a ton of barren desert. And this land, I mean, you just have to carry water with you everywhere. You know, people do carry around water bottles a lot, not like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but everyone has a water bottle. They keep it filled. But you need to have like cases of water in your in your trunk because Out here in the West, you can drive forever, it feels like, and not see a living soul. So you've got to carry your own water and make sure when you do see civilization, you gas up. So anyway, another thing about New Mexico is that the first atomic bomb was detonated in the New Mexico desert. So now, New Mexico is not all desert. There's tons of mesas, and that's like a tabletop kind of rocks, almost like it's a mountain, but instead of being, you know, pointed like a mountain, it's just flat like a table. And that's so neat because the Pueblo, um, the Native Americans who lived in Pueblos, would use these these um, mesas, these rocks, and they would build apartments into the rocks. Very, very fascinating. Um, and so, but there's also forests and there's a lot of snow-capped mountains. It, New Mexico is really beautiful, but they did test the first atomic bomb out in the middle of nowhere within this desert, this dry desert. Now, I want us to visit one of my favorite places in New Mexico. It's called Santa Fe. And I don't know if you realize this, but Santa Fe means holy faith. Now, St. Augustine of Florida, on our first trip, we found out St. Augustine is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the United States. Santa Fe is the oldest 
continuously inhabited capital in the United States. So St. Augustine is the oldest city. Santa Fe is the second oldest city, but it, it does have the honor of being the oldest capital. It was founded, as you can guess, it was founded as a mission, and they built, the Spanish missionaries built a church called San Miguel Chapel. It's the oldest Catholic church in the USA, and it's still regularly used for services. I love that. Remember when we were in Williamsburg and we saw churches that were from the colonial times and people were still using them, having services? Well, that's what it's like in Santa Fe. Now, what you have in Santa Fe is these beautiful, beautiful mountains. It's high in the mountains, there's four centuries. Remember, I told you it's such an old city. There's four centuries of history. There's a thriving artist community. And, I mean, it's such a beautiful place to paint, honestly. It's just so beautiful. And they have these beautiful Pueblo-style architects. So I told you that the, the Native Americans, many in New Mexico, and then some in Arizona, Utah, Colorado, some in Colorado, there's a really beautiful place that I'll tell you about later in a little bit. These Native Americans, a lot of them lived in Pueblos. And so it was basically, I'm sure you've seen pictures of Pueblos. Anyway, there's a place that's close to Santa Fe, maybe like 100 miles away. And it is an old Pueblo from years and years, centuries, and people are still living in them. And they paint their doors different colors. It's amazing. I just think that is so super cool. So anyway, what you see in Santa Fe is you see a lot of this Pueblo-like architecture because there's just a lot of that Native American Spanish influence. And that's one kind of architecture that's just very attractive. There's a Pueblo-style house near uh, my neighborhood, not in my neighborhood, but the next neighborhood over. And I love seeing it. It's so cute. So a lot of houses like that. Um, and then this, this little, uh, this little church, San Miguel Chapel contains amazingly beautiful art treasures. So there's this little church that four centuries ago was the center of community life and there were the franciscans there the native american converts and i'm sure many times spanish soldiers were there passing through or maybe staying for a while so it was a very exciting place and today visitors can wander through the ruins at a nearby um museum well memorial park place Salinas Pueblo Missions National Monument and so it's basically land that's been set aside to remember what life was like for these Native Americans I just think that's so fascinating and now speaking of Native Americans I want us to go from Santa Fe to Four Corners now this is an amazing place it's um, I, there's so many pictures online you can find of people putting two hands, one hand in one hand in one state, one hand in another state, a foot in a different state, and then another foot in the fourth state. This is called Four Corners, and it's where four states come together at one point. It's just they just use lines of longitude and latitude to make these boundary lines. And so it's called Four Corners. 
And the states that meet together are New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. So what happened is after the Mexican-American War, then the U.S. acquired a lot of land from Mexico, and it became known as the Arizona Territory. It was just below we had Colorado Territory. The borders were defined at that point to make the four corners meet at one point. Now, this land today, it belongs to the Navajo Nation, and the Navajo Nation's boundaries extend into New Mexico and Arizona and Utah. So the Navajo Nation is pretty big. It's very large. And the Navajos, a lot of them are shepherds. They have sheep. Many are in business. They have, of course, their own government, their old tribal government. And But there's also tinier reservations there that belong to the Hopi and the Zuni and the Uti. I I knew a lot of Navajo and Hopi believers when I was out there because I worked in, in a hospital where they would send Native Americans from their reservations. So if they couldn't get the medical help they needed on their reservations, they would be airlifted to our hospital and we would take care of them. And so when they would come back to see the doctor for a checkup, then sometimes I would be blessed to get some Navajo or Hopi food or maybe, you know, a craft or something like that. And so it was really, really special. I have a rug that was woven. So anyway, just very special. But this reservation is huge. And of course, people can visit there. Four Corners is there. And it's just very much the beautiful part of the West with these huge rock formations, mountains that look very rocky with snow on the top. So basically, we're almost in Arizona. So we're going to keep going and we're going to go into Arizona. When you think of the Wild West, when if I say to you Wild West, you will probably imagine a cactus that, you know, has a couple of arms to it, uh, maybe two or three arms. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? That cactus is called a saguaro cactus. And that is actually not all over the West. It, it grows in a desert in Arizona, but it's become in our mind the picture of the West to us. So when you go to Arizona, you're go- we're going to visit the Grand Canyon, but you're not only going to see the Grand Canyon, you're going to see red rock formations. You're going to meet a lot of people who come to retire in Arizona, and you're going to see desert landscaping. What is desert landscaping? Oh, my goodness. I was so shocked when I saw it. Instead of grass in your front yard, there are many people who use desert landscaping, and they have pebbles or rocks in their front yard. Yes, a whole yard full of that. So interesting because in Arizona, because it's so dry in, in parts of Arizona, like Phoenix, that are more deserty, then to grow grass, you basically have to soak your, you have to almost drown your lawn every few weeks to just keep it healthy because it's hard to grow grass in the desert. Another thing that you are going to find in our 48th state, of course, there's, I told you about the Navajo Nation and the Hopi Nation. They both have land in Arizona, but also the Apache Nation over in the Eastern Mountains has a huge amount of land. That is some beautiful part of Arizona, very lush, very green 
There's also the amazing petrified forest and the painted desert along Route 66 and several ghost towns that are really fun to visit. So a ghost town happens when you have a boom town because maybe they're they're mining, they find gold, they find silver, they find copper, some kind of gem and they're mining it. And so everyone comes there and it's a big, big town. And then there's no more silver. There's no more copper. There's no more gold. And so the town kind of dwindles away. Well, that's very common in the West because there's a lot of neat minerals. Let's go visit the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is famous all over the world. People come from all over the world to see it. And the first time you get out of your car and you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and look over, you will understand why. It's magnificently beautiful. And you just want to stand there and soak up the beauty. The Grand, uh, the Colorado River runs through the canyon a mile deep and 18 miles wide. And so every time when we lived in Arizona, every time people visited, we took this four-hour trip up to the Grand Canyon, and we took our friends down. We never took a donkey ride, though. We always walked down to the bottom of the canyon, and then, of course, we walked back. It's just very beautiful. I thought it was going to be really hard to walk down, but it's not a hard walk down unless you're talking a lot on the way up. I mean, the, the way up can, you can get a little out of breath just because you're just climbing, climbing, climbing for a really long time. But another thing that you can do at the Grand Canyon, and most people don't know this, is you can drive around to another section of the Grand Canyon. And there, the only way down is by a helicopter. You can take a helicopter ride down and visit the Havasupai Reservation. This is another native tribe. And their reservation is down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It is like a paradise. There's this tropical beauty that you cannot believe. And they have Havasu Falls, and, and there's this natural swimming pool of turquoise water. It's really, really beautiful. So we can do both sides of the canyon in our trip to Arizona, but we're going to keep moving. We're moving on to Colorado with the snow-capped Rocky Mountains ski resorts, vintage mines where you can visit the mines and see as museums and see what they were like. And, of course, a lot of ghost towns in Colorado breathtaking scenery. This is the Rocky Mountains. This is, you know, Rocky Mountain, John Denver. Well, you guys probably don't remember John Denver, but when I was a little girl, the John Denver song, Rocky Mountain, um, Rocky Mountain. Anyway, well, you'll have to listen to it. Google it. But it talks about the beautiful Rocky Mountains and everyone wants to go to the Rocky Mountains to ski. What's really cool about Colorado is Colorado has 53 mountains that are 14ers. That means they are at least 14,000 feet above sea level. And that is pretty cool. Colorado, of course, has forests and mesas and canyons and plateaus and rivers and deserts. And it's absolutely stunningly beautiful, beautiful lakes. But Denver, the capital, is sitting in a valley. It's just so funny because from from Denver, Denver is down in this valley, but from where you are, you can see mountains all around. So it's kind of neat. When you come into the Denver um, airport, which, of course, we're driving, so we're not going to do. But when you come into the Denver airport, it is the widest, longest airport I've ever seen. It's just so 
big and open and it's just like this wide open plain but then of course you can see mountains in the distance so it's it's a really really uh cool city people come from all over the world to ski in Colorado so what i'd like to t- do is take you to three resorts so bracken ridge to me is the best because it's packed with history it's got a lot of historic buildings it has all kinds of galleries and shops and museums to explore. So to me, I like that one best because it's historical. And frankly, I'm a Florida girl. I don't know if I want to ski down a mountain. But, I mean, of course, I do not want to hold you back. Vail is the biggest, and it's very luxurious. So you feel when you go to Vail, Colorado, you feel like you're probably in a European ski resort. It has that kind of feel. Aspen is a ski resort for the rich and famous. So when we go to Aspen, we may end up seeing a celebrity or two because that is where a lot of them go to ski. Wherever you like best, we'll stop and then we'll do what people around the world long to do, ski down a Colorado mountain. As soon as we finish our time of skiing and are are well rested, it's time for Utah. Utah has everything from dry deserts with sand dunes to lush pine forests and fertile valleys. Utah is home to the largest salt lake in America. And one thing about Utah that I've never seen in another state, like they have some, but Utah is filled with these amazing, unique rock formations like giant arches. And I know there's a, I always see these on Americana calendars, this, that big, big giant arch. And that's, of course, from Utah. They also have salt. And I want to take you to a place that, where there is so much salt. You've probably never seen so much salt in your life. And that is west of the Great Salt Lake. Now, of course, we know the Great Salt Lake Why is there so much salt in the Great Salt Lake? It's because a lot of rivers run into this lake, but nothing runs out. So it's kind of like the Dead Sea in Israel, all these rivers running in. And so the minerals collect as water evaporates. It becomes more and more salty. So, But west of the Great Salt Lake is a place called the Bonneville Salt Flats. And they are perfectly flat. You know, with all the mountains and rock formations in Utah, that's amazing in itself. It's perfectly flat, and there's this crust of salty soil. It looks like a big lake covered with with snow, but it's salt. It's just white salt. So no plant life can grow in the saltiest places. But this is what you can do. We can stop the car, and we can walk out on the salt. And we can just walk around. It's just the coolest thing, just this big lake or this big field of salt. And when we get back, we're of course, we're going to have to wipe all the salt off of our shoes and stuff. The Great Salt Lake is mined for salt, but the Bonneville Salt Flats actually are not mined for table salt. They are actually mined for magnesium. And then the leftovers are used for road salt. You know, in the cold countries where it snows, you probably live in a cold country where it snows. I mean, a cold state where it snows. Then you know that they use road salt and that prevents accidents. It keeps the roads from being slick. So, of course, it's very needed. But I thought that was interesting. So much salt just glistening for the world to see. Now, about six hours south we southeast of the Bonneville Salt Flats, 
nestled between red sandstone cliffs is a place called Coral Pink Sand Dunes Park. And there the sand is light peach or pink in color. And we can actually go sandboarding down the dunes after we hike to the top. So the other place was flat. Bonneville, Bonneville Salt Flats was completely flat, just a field of salt. But this place, Coral Pink Sand Dunes State Park, the sand is a, is a pinkish color and there's all kinds of sand dunes. So we can go, you know, like bring a surfboard or a boogie board. Like I'm from Florida, we take boogie boards into the water. We can actually do that and like get on it on our tummies and slide down. Super fun, super fun. So I think, I hope I've showed you a whole different side of Utah maybe than you thought of before. And now we are on to Nevada. Now, Nevada was named and explored by the Spanish, of course. You know, I mentioned that before. Nevada means snow-covered. And so the Sierra Nevada is snow-covered, the snow-covered mountains. And they're in Nevada, these snow-covered mountains. But the rest of Nevada is desert. Nevada is the desertiest state in the whole country. After the Mexican-American War, the U.S. acquired a large amount of territory in the West. And when silver was discovered in Utah Territory, she became Nevada Territory and later a state. So mining today is still big business. And listen to this. You probably didn't know this, okay? Nevada is the fourth largest producer of gold in the whole world the fourth largest, and they're known as the silver state. So they produce even more silver, but they're the fourth largest producer of gold in the whole world. That's against other countries. So amazing. Nevada, I, I mentioned, is, is almost all desert. And so it's a very dry, dry state. Again, we have to keep hydrating out here. The capital of Nevada is named Carson City. And I don't know if y'all remember from history, Kit Carson, the city is named after Kit Carson, and that's the capital. Christopher Kit Houston Carson was a larger-than-life mountain man, explorer, map maker, fur trader, wilderness guide, Indian agent, and U.S. Army officer. So they named Carson City after Kit, and they both have a very exciting history. So we can explore that history while we're here. So just a really neat place. They have a, a tour where you can go to different sites throughout, and there'll be like a plaque that'll tell you what that has to do with the history of Kit Carson. So that's really fun. So Carson City was a stopover for those traveling on to, to California. And then she started growing when silver was discovered at Comstock Lode near Virginia City, and then she became a railroad hub. So first she was just like a rest stop, then she was a railroad hub. And so nearby at Carson City is the Nevada State Railroad Museum with a locomotive and a railroad station. And then there's the Nevada State Museum with a recreated Wild West village. And then I told you about the Kit Carson Trail with the 50 landmarks telling the city, the history of Kit Carson and of Carson City. Now, nearby Virginia City is a well-preserved frozen in time wild west town. So again, this was a, this was one of those boom towns. It was a bustling, booming mining town. And they just decided, okay, instead of going bust, we're just going to let this freeze in time and people can come visit and see what life 
was like in the old days. Our next stop is Wyoming. Wyoming is the place to go to see gorgeous scenery, enjoy the great outdoors, and remember frontier life in the Wild West. It's very sparsely populated, and by that I mean it's one of the least populated states in the country. But you can meet real cowboys, enjoy rodeos, and see working ranches. Nature offers hot springs, wet, red-walled gorges, geysers, and waterfalls. It's really beautiful there. It does get really cold, but it is really beautiful. Native American tribes like the Arapaho, Crow, Lakota, and Shoshone have a huge impact on the names of, of cities and roads, the culture, the food. And Southwest Wyoming was part of the Spanish Empire before becoming a territory and later a state. One of the places we're going to go to in Wyoming is Yellowstone National Park. It's the world's oldest and first national park. Huge herds of bison roam free in the valleys. Trumpeter swans glide effortlessly across pristine lakes. Bald eagles soar above the mountain tops and geysers hiss. Mud pots bubble and steaming hot springs delight visitors. Waterfalls pour down steep ravines, creating a vision of light. It's absolutely spectacular. Yellowstone Lake is the highest in elevation lake in the country, and it's way too cold for for swimming. It freezes over in the winter and stays cold during the summer. But you can go out on the lake in a boat and you can fish for cutthroat trout, very popular out in this part of the country. And Grand Prismatic Spring is a really large hot spring, and there's a colorful rainbow ring on the surface. And that's created, ironically, by bacteria and microbes. Who knew they could be so beautiful? The Yellowstone River has two beautiful waterfalls, Upper Falls and Lower Falls. The Lower Falls drops 308 feet as the river starts flowing through the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone Park. It's just a really beautiful thing to see. And, of course, what everyone wants to see when they go to Yellowstone is Old Faithful, which is a a geyser that shoots a burst of hot water over 100 feet in the air every hour or so. So Wyoming is just a fascinating place. One of the things that I really would like to see when we're here is Frontier Days, with rodeos and all kinds of reenactments and just you can kind of feel like the old days is here again. Our next stop is Montana. Montana is the fourth largest state. It's full of beautiful wildernesses to explore. It's home to national parks, 10 national forests, animal preserves, ski resorts, and battlefield. And it's really Montana is the land of copper and cowboys. So there's just so much to do in Montana, and everything seems so much bigger in Montana, and I'm guessing that's why they call it the Big Sky Country. I want to take you to a town called Boot. Boot started as a copper mining boomtown, and today we can visit a museum. It's called the World Museum of Mining. It has a restored mining camp with an underground tour of the mine. So we can go down into the mine and see what it was like. There's also a Copper King mansion that was built in 1888, and it reflects the prosperity that was in this town back in the Victorian times. 
If you want to see a 27-ounce gold nugget, we can see it at the Mineral Museum. And this is really a fascinating museum for kids who are interested in rocks and gems and things like that. And then here's my favorite thing. Near Boot is a place with the ringing rocks. And this is so amazing. It's a geological phenomenon. When the rocks are hit, they ring like a bell. However, if a rock is removed, it won't work. So you can climb the rocks and use a little hammer to hit the rock and it will ring like a bell. It's just so fascinating. Those little things that God creates just to make the world more fun to explore. Our final stop is Idaho. Idaho is filled with endless mountains and forests and rivers. It's the top potato producer in the U.S. And it's also lentil capital of the world. Did you know that? I only knew about the potatoes. The television was invented in Rigsby by Philo T. Farnsworth. And so it's the birthplace of TV. But my favorite thing about Idaho, though I really do like potatoes, is there's 72 precious and semi-precious stones that have been discovered in Idaho. So you can go looking for gems. You can go panning for gems at different places and probably find something. So Sagachawea, a Shoshone, helped guide Lewis and Clark. She was from Idaho. And all of the California and Oregon trails, both of them passed through the state. So Idaho became part of Washington Territory in 1853. But when gold was discovered, Idaho became its own territory and then became a state in 1890. Idaho is also known for hot springs. Nevada has the highest number of hot springs in the country, but most of them you can't use because they're either too hot or there's um, bacteria in them or there's other issues with the springs. However, Idaho has 340 hot springs, and you can soak in 130 of them. So that's a lot that are usable. And Lava Hot Springs is a little town that is covered with these hot springs pools. So they're all different temperatures depending on the hot springs. And if you're, I think I'm pretty tired. We've gone to, what, 10 states and two Indian nations. So I'm exhausted. Why don't we choose the temperature we like best? And we can just relax in these hot pools that are heated by the hot springs. After we relax, we can explore the five caves or lava tubes, although that does make me a little nervous. We can also visit water parks or hike or golf or explore the mountains nearby. Well, it's time to head home. I hope you took lots of pictures. Thank you so much for joining me on this whirlwind tour of the Southwest and Western States. I look forward to our next trip to the Pacific States and our five territories. God bless you, and thank you so much for being part of our adventure on the ultimate extravagant U.S. road trip. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first and third Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network.